Hey everyone, welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckmann. Joining me as always is Doc Searles. And today we have a special guest, Barbara Cherry, professor at Indiana University, is joining us today. And Doc knows her really well, so I'm going to let him uh, do the formal introduction. Before we get going, I wanted to quickly remind everyone to please go sign up for our newsletter. You can find a link on our website, reality2cast.com, and just click the newsletter or subscribe link. Thanks. Thanks, Catherine. I've, I've known uh, Barb for a number of years and and rely on her for having um, original and absolute wisdom on things that I've not heard from anybody else. And she's very much a polymath. She's a, a, a law. She's a lawyer and a law professor, but she's also in the media department, I believe. But I know her through the Ostrom Workshop, where I'm. Uh, I've been a, a a visiting scholar for the last year. Before I get into it, why don't you just tell us a little bit of what I missed, and then we'll jump into what you and I were talking about earlier, and it's too interesting to leave to leave on that cutting room floor. Uh, this morning, you mean? Yeah, just a few minutes ago, we were talking. <laughs> yes, yes. I took some um, notes, but it's, good, it's better to hear from you. Well, what we've been talking about um, is looking at this particular period of time we have with the election and trying to understand what does it mean or what brought us to this point. And I was sharing with, with Doc my perspective of some of the things that are in play and that I think what I refer to as systems thinking thinking of things in terms of systems can be a very helpful way for us to try and comprehend what is going on where history can tell us quite a bit, but also there's a lot of things we can't know. But systems thinking, understanding how humans behave and how we interact with all these systems we've created, these artificial systems, the economy, uh, governance, uh, political systems, and how this interplay uh, is taking place. And I think I have some at least some perspectives to share that might be of interest. Yeah, you, you were talking about, as I was taking notes on it, while we were talking earlier, that's like there's, we're still these biological creatures that have created these complex institutions, some of which we revere and are 200 years old. And for example, you said the constitution never even comprehended a party, a political party. And that's a huge part of the way governance is run now. And then we create the technologies that alter us as well. I mean, we're digital beings now. We're not just physical ones. We, we're extended by our phones and by these other things that are, that are unlike anything we've had before. And that every generation seems to have been born into a milieu that gets obsolesced as, as technology moves forward and the institutions drag behind. And even within them, you were talking about, and we can go in any number of directions here, how the, the three branches of the U.S. government, the, the, the executive, the um, um, the courts and um, and the legislative all had, you know, they all moved at different speeds in the past or they were kind of meant to move at different speeds, but now everything is stripping our gears. Yeah. So you could dive down any of those rat holes you would like. Sure. But I- <laughs> well, my own expertise, um, I'm a lawyer, but I also went back for my PhD in communication studies. So I'm trained to think as a lawyer, but also as a social scientist. And the relevance of that is they ask, tend to ask different questions. And my own expertise had been developing in governance structures, particularly as applied to communications technologies, to what degree should government be involved in or not involved in with the regulation of different communications type systems and infrastructures. And in that vein, I have functioned both as a lawyer for AT&T and Ameritech. I've worked for the FCC in Washington, and I've also looked at these as a scholar. So I've studied these from different vantage points. But the one thing that struck me that I 
hadn't studied as well or understood as well until more recently is really coming to terms with the fact that we've created all these systems, but what is the fundamental unit of analysis in all this? Human beings. Human beings, we make up these things. We make up these systems and orders in order to enable us to scale up our ability to live in much larger groups compared to how our species first evolved to live in small groups and tribes. And evolutionarily, our bodies, our biology has evolved to deal with small, to live in small groups. We did not evolutionarily evolve to live in large thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions and billions of people. Instead, we've had to structure institutions, develop fictions or myths or principles to help guide us, to give us something to focus on, to enable us to be able to better live with such large numbers of people that's impossible to get to know people individually. Because in small groups, you get to have repeated transactions with people, so you start to learn who to trust, not just trust. Instead, we have to create alternative ways of creating trust, of which a great book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari is excellent in explaining. And so I've become much more aware that biologically, we have not evolved to live in these large scale systems that we've created. And we create these systems as best we can at the time in which we create them. But we don't really understand necessarily how they interact with our biology. And then certainly as our species keeps evolving more technology over time, our change in technology also requires that our systems have to evolve. And so it just gets increasingly more complex over time. And so what I'm finding is that in order to better understand how we're living today requires that we go back and recapture a sense of history to realize that our biology is stuck in thousands and thousands, tens of th thousands of years ago, but our institutions we're trying to live with are very recent. And even our own constitution is out of date. So in that vein, what I was explaining is there's another great book called Liberal Democracy and the Social Acceleration of Time, written by William Scheuermann. And he explains that our US Constitution, remember, uh, was written over 200 years ago. And at that time, it was considered a legal innovation, a political innovation, a brand new form of governance to trying to find a way for humans to scale up living in a group, a representative form of government <clears throat> without having to have some permanent monarchy based on some kind of um, based on a caste system or, or, you know, that your birth order. And this system was purposely designed to try and prevent abuse of power. To prevent the abuse of power they felt that they had experienced from England. And so their idea was to create three branches of government at the federal level to which each branch of government was designed to make decisions in a different temporal context. So the Congress was supposed to be very forward-looking, creating prospective laws. So you want that to be very deliberate and considered and not done too rapidly. The executive branch was meant to be able to react more in present time under current law and to be able to make decisions, timely decisions for more day-to-day -day activity 
And then the judiciary was much more retroactive in perspective in that it's applying pre-existing law to things that have happened in the past, for example, determine whether something's been violated or not. And his book does a great way of explaining how the technologies we've, have, we've developed, the increased speed of transportation, communications, we've sped up the way in which homo sapiens live to such a degree that we're putting pressures on our own government. And in the United States, for example, our three branches, they're being each being pressured to react in a time context that they weren't designed to do. We're asking Congress to pass laws with much greater frequency to be able to respond much more urgently, which they weren't designed to do. With recent party polarization, the fact that we've got gridlock in Congress and that certain policy decisions are not being made by Congress is putting increased pressure on the courts to make decisions in specific cases to address factual scenarios and circumstances and how to apply pre-existing law to those new circumstances when it might be prefer preferential for the Congress to make those decisions. And then to react more quickly, the president, you know, the executive branch is finding pressure to make more decisions in real time. And there is something else that you and I are well familiar of in the media field. One of the results of Congress not being able to create laws fast enough to deal with rapid technological change is that as a result of the industrial revolution in the late 19th century, Congress created the first regulatory agency ever to regulate a specific industry, the Interstate Commerce Commission to regulate railroads. And it was an express recognition that Congress couldn't possibly keep tabs on this industry with the attention that's needed. And they created a new form of governmental body called a regulatory administrative agency to which the statute created the agency, gave them all these powers and said, you monitor them. And that was a recognition also that judicial litigation through the courts, where you depend on customers of corporations to sue them in courts wasn't working because these big corporations had too much an advantage in judicial litigation. Well, that was a legal innovation. We've applied the same legal innovation now to regulate initially telephone, telegraph. We have the federal initially by the Interstate Commerce Commission. We now have a federal communications commission. We've expanded their jurisdiction over time to include cable TV, commercial mobile. And now, that, now what do you do about internet service providers? And the complexity of how we keep trying to evolve our governance systems to keep up with the change in technology is a continual churn. And how do we live with that? And then come back to the very fact that, as you mentioned before, and you tell me when I'm going on too long, and then where parties comes in is that our whole constitution of, in and of itself was created before there were parties. If you were to try and come up with a new constitution today, and that you would want to amend the constitution to prevent that kind of abuse of power by agencies, I mean, by political parties. Then we would want specifically to take into account yet a new form of collective structure that's developed, which are political parties. And what's happened in the last couple hundred years is as parties, political parties have emerged, they've have experimented and have found ways to aggregate power within our structure of the US constitution within, you know, in the federal government and federalism where we share power between the federal and state governments, they have found ways to 
manipulate how things, how the machinery works under our constitution to advantage certain parties over others over time. And that's where you can now, that's why we have now the potential for certain abuses of power that our forefathers didn't foresee. And then if we were really mm -hmm. to try and deal with it, we would need to amend our governance structure. The recent confirmation, how recently confirmation of US Supreme Court justices have been held this year is exemplary of that. Yeah. For a, yeah so we could go into that if you wanted to, but it's just a manifestation. The gridlock in Congress, the fact that um, you have a Senate now where a majority leader will not bring certain uh, votes to the floor. That's not in the Constitution. The Constitution mm. doesn't go into sufficient detail to explain it. It actually leaves to both the House and the Senate the ability to develop rules about how their chambers work. So it's only the way parties have evolved and have decided to have majority minority leaders. None of those things are in the Constitution. And the fact, even the filibuster is not in the Constitution. So over time, parties have changed the rules in their own chamber that have resulted in different forms of gridlock or blocking the ability to develop uh, compromises. So failing to call things to the floor, that's not in the constitution. Failing they have this, to have a president nominate a justice for the US Supreme Court and for the Senate to not even grant a hearing, that's not in the constitution. In fact, the first time that's ever happened in our history was when McConnell and the Senate blocked uh, Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. There is the ability under a constitution as written for a subsequent evolution of political parties to manipulate or experiment to find ways of aggregating power to their advantage within that system. And that will persist unless we have a change in rules with whether it's a constitutional amendment itself or something, but that's what this current structure now enables. And the polarity polarization that we're in right now is taking advantage of that. There's something that you mentioned earlier, and and that's um, you know the current structures that we have. You know, we 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 had to evolve to regulate certain certain technologies. You know, for the first being railroad, whatnot, and and you know it brings me back to a question that we've had in previous episodes, and that is, you know we just recently talked about you know section two thirty and and mm -hmm. and the desire to regulate social media and such and things like that. And it, my question is always with this, the technology moves at such an incredible speed that I it's hard for me to fathom legislators being able to keep up with it and correct me if I'm wrong but I my understanding is that we what we end up doing is applying existing laws that are that are designed to work on uh, te telegraphs for example the telegraph law and other telecommunications law that then end up having to sort of be applied to things regarding the internet which doesn't make any sense right because we have not evolved quickly enough. We have not reacted quickly enough to technology and the evolution of technology. So I just wonder like, how, how is it even possible for a legislative body to keep up with the pace at which technology moves? There's is it one way here I can answer it. First of all, the phenomena of needing to create the phenomena by which Congress created in the regulatory agency to pick, to be able to respond more speedily than the legislature itself was a legal innovation in 18, 1887. And that itself reflects a, a really important development in our society. It's during the 19th century industrial revolution when we created, when 
new technologies were, were being created that enabled human, certain human activities to be done on scale, okay? Particularly network technologies like railroads, telegraphy, telephone, and then even the steam engine with lots of economies of scale for even steam presses for newspapers. The 19th century with the industrial revolution led to a growth in the number of corporations and their size. And in fact, we had to change the laws in the United States to enable corporations to be created more easily in order to accommodate the need for the corporate form because the corporate form was needed to amass all the capital that was needed to exploit these technologies. It used to be when this country was founded that the only way a corporation could be created was a specific piece of legislation passed by a state legislator granting a special charter for a corporation to exist for a very specific purpose. And innovation during the 19th century was the creation of what we called general incorporation statutes. In response to the industrial revolution and in order to make the corporate form more widely available for multiple uses in particular in business, these statutes were created and has led to the increase in the number of corporations and those laws also allowed them to be in ever larger scale with special charters that corporations were also limited in their size. The phenomena is the 19th century resulted in this huge growth of humans scaling their activity commercially through corporations and importantly through network technologies that have scaled their effect on the economy and with communications technologies like the telephone and telegraph that affected not only commerce, but also our political system because of the way in which we communicate. So what's happened is during that whole, that was our first attempt to try and deal with how do we manage on scale with new technologies and how do we adjust our governance systems to deal with it? The first response was to create new form of government entities, regulatory agencies to take over that function and they can respond much more quickly. Now, what's happened in the 20th century and particularly late 20th and early 21st, the speed of technological change keeps increasing. We're having changed the technology more rapidly than even the 19th century. And the speed, it's not only the speed at which the innovations are taking place, but the speed of the transactions that are being done through that technology, through computers, which have been enabled by digital. So everything has speeded up, not just the rate of technological change, but the way we live our lives, the way we conduct commerce, the speed with which we can communicate with each other. And so this has had an enormous speeding, further speeding up function. Now, how does that relate back to the law? Here's one of the things you will find if you study the law, which I have over centuries. <laughs> um, and going back to some of the roots of the law. You see, in the United States, the most fundamental means of creating new law still is what we call the common law. We are a common law country. We inherited this from England. And how the law was initially evolved over time was through judge-made precedent through the evolution of customs and norms and recognition by the courts over time as people are interacting with each other and it could be the proximate cause of injury to other people, for example, when is that injury actionable in court for which you're entitled to a remedy? And through 
centuries of judge-made law, that's how the law evolved to deal with society as it changed. During the Industrial Revolution, 19th century, this led to the first speeding up of going from just relying on common law to having more legislative law, or what we call statutory law, by both Congress at the federal level and by states at the state level. So statutorification started to take over for common law evolution. Then it turned out that even statutorification wasn't fast enough, particularly for certain industries like railroads, these big corporations, railroads, telephone, telegraphs. So they created a new kind of corporate, uh, a new kind of government entity called a regulatory agency. So that was supposed to further speed up and help keep up. Now we're finding we're reaching the limit of even regulatory agencies being able to respond. So how do we ratchet up another notch? We don't know yet. Are we gonna have to invent another means by doing so? And then here's the final thing that fits into your piece of law. How do we keep up? Here's another thing. Because we've gone from common law to speeding up creating new law through statutes, this is another reason why increasingly our statutes have become more specific. Hmm. If you look at earlier point in time, statutes tend to be more general. Even the Sherman Act of 1890, the very first antitrust act, it, hmm. you'd be surprised how short it is. Two quick provisions that are just basically saying no restraints in trade and certain monopolization is wrong. What's happened over time is that statutes increasingly themselves have, have, have had to become more specific to keep dealing with more and more specific problems. Okay, so if you have a general law, how does that get interpreted by the courts? And then maybe people do or don't like what the courts have decided. So then you go back to the legislature and say, well, can we have a tweak to that law? And you see, this is where I cut my teeth in industry. When I worked for AT&T in the 80s and in the 90s, my job was as a lawyer working in the states. And we had to increasingly go back to the legislature to keep revising the laws, to keep up with the latest things that were happening in the telephone business. Um, and as we had competition with long distance, and then what happened when you had um, local exchange competition, you know, the Metro fibers of the world, things like that. The phenomenon of having increasingly, increasingly more specific statutes and needing changes fixes like section 230. Section 230 happened in the mid nineties, all in light of the most recent changes with internet, okay? And so we are living in a period where the need for increasing specificity in statutes or in what you enable another government entity like an agency to do. That's why agencies, many agencies are given rulemaking power to create new laws. They're essentially, uh, legislatures delegate their legislative making power to agencies when they give them rulemaking power. You enable agencies to create rules that have the same effect of law. You give them the power to adjudicate things more like a specific complaints that they know more about than perhaps courts would. We've continually tried to innovate means by which to speed up how we can deal with, it, how we can police or encourage the kind of behavior we want and don't want and what kind of violations you give legal remedies for or not. This is relatively new in our experience as a species in the last just like 100, 150 years is trying to find a way to keep speeding up how we can get our governance systems to be able to settle disputes as we keep finding new ways to interact with each other, which includes technology. 
is this making sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's part of the problem. We're we're literally living and and that the reason I go back to the 1887 Interstate Commerce Act is that's the first time that Congress, you go back in history, the first time that Congress and the Senate set up a special select committee to study interstate commerce and it produced a report known as the Cullum Report, C-U-L-L-O-M, named after the Senator Cullum that chaired that. And it goes on for hundreds of pages. And when you read it in real time, you see the world as they saw it. And it all had to do with railroads at the time. But if everywhere you just took out railroads and put in telecommunications, you would swear to God, you're living the same thing today. And what do they have, and what do railroads and telecommunications have in common? Their network infrastructure technologies that speed up communication and their common carriers under the common law. We are reliving in many ways, just at a higher speed, things that have already happened in the 19th century. But through deregulation, we've gotten rid of some of the, we've dismantled some of the laws that were put in place to deal with those problems. And that's what net neutrality is about. We've actually undone some of the laws that were put in place to specifically deal with the problems that happened in the 19th century, and they're getting repeated now. So we really behooves us to look at history. Always, yes, I agree. As I need to increasingly specify, I don't see any way out of it. There has to be some mechanism to continually settle disputes and deal with the ways in which humans interact both for good and for bad. And if there's certain kinds of behaviors and effects that we want for our society, we have to have a means by which to say, this kind of outcome is okay, this kind of outcome is not. And we may have to keep adjusting and redrawing the lines in slightly different ways as we learn more, as the technology changes or as we learn more about the impact of the technology. And I don't see any way around that. It's just that we might have to get more creative about the mechanisms we use to do that. Administrative regulatory agencies was an innovation in the late 19th century to start that process. Can we improve upon that? That's one of the things we should be looking at. You know, I wonder a couple of things. One of them is, I wonder, being a bit of a techno rebel, I wonder if I, if I enjoy the fact that technology maybe moves faster than, let's say, railroad technology or earlier telecommunication. Today, internet technologies are moving at a pretty rapid clip. And, you know, maybe I enjoy the fact that they outpace our ability to regulate or legislate them. And, and, and that's, that's one thought I had. And the other thought I had was, you know, the idea that, that we have to sort of shape behaviors that are desirable and undesirable. And I wonder how in the world we do that today being so politically divided. And I wondered if you had any thoughts of that. Or Doc, you know. Well, that's where I, I struggle with. It's an the problem is it's an endogenous variable. <laughs> the very technology that's enabling it is also one could argue is contributing to the polarization because it enables tribalism in another way. It enables like even what we call what's fake news, what's not, what's fact, what's not. It's harder for us as humans to even decipher. We've created for every, this is one thing I've learned looking at history of technology. Every technology our species creates has what we might perceive as, you know, the beneficial effects but also they have effects that are not considered as beneficial. Sometimes the beneficial effects might be for the collective as a whole, but has some real negative effects on individuals and that could change over time. And sometimes people find, however well-intentioned a technology might be invented for, 
as you talk to some of the people who are considered the founders of the internet, <laughs> in terms of technology, they did not foresee some of the uses that it's been put to now. And so this is one of the things we have to constantly come to terms with our species is that our species is very creative and these systems we keep creating can be used for multi-purposes. And the means by which a society tries to collectively change the rules of the game is endogenous with the technology that we use to organize ourselves. So that's what can make it very difficult. And from a political, and then um, when Doc was referring earlier to being a polymath, but this is where you need to be interdisciplinary. Talk people, this is where I, uh, when you go to the political scientists, what they often find, unfortunately, is sometimes the major governance changes you need require crisis. Sometimes it takes a crisis on scale to get a system to change. Something, unfortunately, might have to go really wrong before you can jostle the system to rearrange itself in such a way that they finally can invoke the change it's needed. Unintended consequences, I think my most frequently used phrase on this podcast. (laughs) Yes, and unintended consequences. From some perspective, it's a crisis. In other words, sometimes the aberrant or negative effect has to reach such a threshold. Right. So that you can jostle and essentially the status quo sufficiently that you can get a change in the system. Let me... Oh, good. Well, oh, just really quickly, I promise this time. Okay. <laughs> do, do, do our legislators have that interdisciplinary background that you mentioned, though? And, and, are, and do they have, I mean, they, they, obviously every legislator can, can pull in experts from all fields, but that, that, I guess that's, that's, I can leave it at that. That's a, actually, before well, no, you that's answer, a good question. Before you I answer that, I, I, wanted to, I, I want to go somewhere that totally is down the line that, that where Catherine's taking you, because you may have been there when a small group of us met to talk about net neutrality with a former FCC chairman, I won't name, and at a gathering that we were at, and he said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said, I've met with every member of Congress, and there are two things that almost none of them understand. One is technology, and the other is economics. Now, good luck. So uh, that's sort of a way of framing up you know, where you might go with this, because I- This is if, where I, yeah. I can share some experience, at least from having been involved in policy making since the early 80s. Yeah. It's not necessarily that every individual legislator has to be interdisciplinary. You have to have a set of circumstances such that the system can function and enable interdisciplinary thinking. So let me give an example. When I, early on working for AT&T, I was in the government affairs group and I represented AT&T's interests, working with lobbyists, negotiating legislation in various states. And the political environment was such in the United States at that time, that you had enough moderates in both Republican and Democratic parties that it was possible to get people in the room representing different interests to discuss and talk about these things and to reach a compromise, what I would call a well-considered compromise that reflected a true blend of the differing interests. And then that could be, and the legislators and their staff would enable these discussions to take place 
And then we could help develop language, joint language. Like this is when a lot of the rewrites were done of the public utility laws in the states. Okay, I had a hand in rewriting quite a few of the statutes in the Midwest. We could truly get language, draft language to go into a bill that would be then sponsored by state legislators. And it would reflect the input of people from these different interests. And you could get enough, you could get sponsors from both parties, you could get it through the machinery so that you could actually get bills passed that generally reflected an interdisciplinary, inter-stakeholder perspective. The environment, the political environment at the time enabled that to happen. And so that's what you need. You need a institution, a governance system that accommodates in how it functions, the ability of the exchange of views. And that's what we've lost now. In part, some might argue that part of it's due to change in rules within the parties themselves, where the means by which um, that running for office becomes more of a fight during the primary. Okay, so the fight during the primary leads to more extreme views for that party's representative. And that over time that's contributed to having legislators with more extreme views. The party apparatus itself, and I've talked to a number of politicians who've been around for quite a while, who've talked about how the parties, how they've handled their own structure of candidates and primaries has itself changed the system. Also, the fact that some also political scientists date some of the increased hostility to around the Gingrich period of time. That in the big scope of time, sort of that what's considered the bipartisan era that I lived through earlier in my career is deemed to have been coming to an end in the mid nineties primarily around the time that Nick Gingrich came to prominence and he was advocating a different means of doing business as we've seen. And this has contributed to the dynamic also happening that within the Republican party, there's a certain of, again, increasingly away from bipartisan reaching compromises. It's all for broke kind of thing. So you have to look over this big scope of of time, what I see is that it's a succession of things that have happened over time. And then the infusion of dark money by a lot of the moneyed people into academia itself, by my being in academia now at IU since 2006, how much it's affected how scholars get funding or not, and how there's been an increased funneling of funding to get certain um, outcomes and how it's compromised some of the things in academia. Um, we've had a series of developments, particularly in the last couple of decades that has contributed to the increase in the polarization and then the manufacture of arguments and scholarship to support more extreme views. You have to look at these things as multi-layered. And it's the cumulative effect of all of these that have led to on balance in our an environment where we have this polarization. But I have been a part of policymaking processes when you didn't have that degree of polarization, you didn't have that kind of hostility, you really could get 
more well-reasoned multi-stakeholder input. And I feel bad for people, young people coming up now because they haven't experienced that. They didn't even know it's possible. So this is where we, and then you talk about complex systems. This is the mother of all things that's really spurred my thinking the most is becoming aware of the complex systems perspective. The whole thing that certain systems are so complex that you can't understand their behavior by just reducing their into parts. You can't, you can't reduce understanding a system into parts and say, oh, because you have these parts, ABC is going to operate a certain way. Complex systems, you only know how they're going to behave by watching them, by living them and observing them. And this is part of what we're saying. We are living an experiment right now within an experiment. The US Constitution itself is considered an experiment in political governance. And even within the Constitution, we are living through an experimental period because of the pace because of our particular combination of circumstances. And so nobody could tell you for sure what's going to happen. Can a fully tribalized system survive? I mean, I'm thinking of Lincoln and a a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, We have that now. And it's an effect. There's a a heuristic that uh, Marshall and Eric McLuhan came up with where you look at everything in terms of a new media doing four, new technology doing four things. It re, it enhances one, it retrieves one, it obsolesces one, and then it reverses into one. Oh yes, I've seen you use that. Yeah. Yeah, and and well, what it what um, and I was thinking with with social media, just social media alone, it clearly enhance, makes us more social. It it either retrieves or enhances gossip. I mean, to a a, a monstrous degree. I mean, got it's you want gossip? There's nothing better than Facebook or, or Twitter for gossip, right? which is Yuval Noah Harari in, in Sapiens, which you sourced earlier, says it was certainly part of the way our tribes worked in the first place. I mean, you have a tribe of 20 people, you know who the good ones are getting berries, or the good ones for making tools, the, the ones that know how to do cave art or whatever else it is, or where the beasts live, or I mean, who knows what it was, but we, we needed that in order to know each other. But generally, we knew each other fairly well. And, and humans are interesting in the sense that we are all designed to look and sound different on purpose so we can tell each other apart. And we, we all have very unique souls. I mean, we're very different, and which is, makes it even more vexing. But then it, we've retrieved every medium there is, you know, f- for social media. Like right now, I mean, w- right now we're retrieving radio and we've obsolesced radio that used towers and transmitters. It's, uh, that's ancient history at this point. But it's reversed into tribalism and, and into tribes. I mean, actual tribes you know, watching the news going back and forth between Fox News and CNN, MSNBC, these are different worlds. I mean, and they're doing things that humans have always done, which is tell stories. And there are stories. They have a hero. Their hero is Trump. And on the other side is a hero. And that's Biden, at least at the moment. And all the stories are about how this one is victimized. That one's doing that thing. Whether whether things are true or not is almost a secondary consideration. It's or or below that, it doesn't have to be if it serves the story. And what are the best stories? They're fiction, right? And we can all get to write fiction. You just make it up on the fly, and it, and if it's in character, it works, right? Of course, they're cheating. They they have to. That's what they do, and that's the only way I'm ever going to lose is if somebody cheats. And speaking personally, I have no idea what to do with that. I, I'm I'm hoping. I don't want to get too far into the politics of, it, but I'm hoping that if. I have no hope that if Trump wins, that this will ever happen, but I have some hope that if Biden wins, we have somebody who, I mean, we'll have a president who has been a 47 year 
47 moving point average of every democratic policy there's been, including all the compromises. So that's not a bad thing. I mean, in, especially in, in the, along the line of the ideals you've been talking about, which is, can we, can we at least talk to each other guys, you know? So, and I'm wondering about that. I, I'm wondering whether, I'm also thinking about, you know, in, in George Lakoff's distinctions between what he called the strict father model and the nurture and parent model, but saying the nurture and parent model is one that actually gets more done where there's a strict father model basically wants to dominate and win, calls the others losers and moves on. That will, you know, by having somebody on top that at least is trying to care about other people, we're, we might have a better chance at getting somewhere. But I don't know. I mean, I well, just don't know. As you're speaking, I, I'm referring to, I take copious notes. <laughs> I read something I think is great. And the Sapiens book, we've talked about, an important thing that the author emphasizes is that when we stumbled on agriculture as a species that enabled right. us to live in groups of much larger scale, he emphasizes that um, we did not have enough time to allow an instinct for mass cooperation to evolve. So instead, sapiens invented myths to provide the needed social links to build networks of mass cooperation. And so basically, our cooperation networks are all based on imagined orders or myths, shared myths. And one example of that, for example, he cites like the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Declaration yeah. of Independence. That, that there's such a thing as rights. So he said, we made that one up yeah, too. We made that up. And so yeah. basically <laughs> he's saying that he believes that functionally imagined orders are the only way large numbers of humans can cooperate effectively. And what's happening is we have a war of myths going on now. Yes. We have certain yeah. myths. We have a certain order. The constitution itself reflects certain myths or orders, right? That we bought into as a country, but how have we tried to live within it? It required continual amendment, like dealing with slavery, things like that. It keeps amending over time. We're through another period now where we've got a challenge of alternate myths now. And technology can make it more possible for certain myths to get this distributed, right? With mm -hmm. greater ease than they might otherwise. And so one could argue when you look at it from the perspective, the big macro long-term horizon, like the Sapiens book does, that we're going through another iteration of trying to figure out what are the myths that are going to prevail? What's the imagined order that's going to prevail for mass cooperation? Now, we had a structure of government based on certain myths in the U.S. Constitution. Now, will that hold? Or can it continue to be modified? Or is there ultimately going to be such a serious rupture to that that we have to start something else? Now, what happened in the American Revolution from Britain was a rupture to establish a new order. And sometimes we forget, unless we remember our civics, that the first attempt of the United States to develop a governance system with its Articles of Confederation. That was the first constitution. Yeah, and within a tossed. decade, they said living underneath the, within that was anarchy. That's using their words. The hmm. federal government was so weak in interstate commerce, it was impossible to live under, which is why they called for a constitutional convention. They got Washington to preside over it because they knew he was so important as a leading 
person to get people to buy into having a, a constitutional convention. And that's what ultimately led to the US Constitution. Now, at different times, you know, we've had our own test with the Civil War, and the Civil War resulted in some further amendments to the Constitution, but we, you know, the threat to the unity of the country was seriously threatened then. And so the question always is, to what degree can you continue to manage change? Can you manage the contest of myths, each of which reflect the incentives of different groups? And when we have a faction now that has a lot vested in creating a myth of fraud in elections and so on and so forth, how far will that carry? And now we got to take into account we have new technology now that enables certain myths to be transmitted and retransmitted, right, with ease that might enable those myths to scale at a level to compete with the pre existing myths, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things we're living through. And the political polarization is both. It's endogenous. It's both contributes to and it's a feedback loop. It both contributes it's to multiple and feedback loops. I. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering. I mean, I was thinking as you're reminding us of the of the Civil War. I mean, there there we had two. You know, uh, a, a split between that was a geographical split, but it was also a split of a number of other kinds. But because it sat on geography, we, we could have a civil war where people went to war on, over territory, as it as it were. Here in the virtual world, we can build up enormous divisions, but it occurred to me they are geographical as well. And as just as a, I never write anything about politics for the, in, on Facebook because I know I'll get immediately profiled and put into one of those camps. So I wrote as an experiment a, a couple of days ago, this one-liner which is like a piece of poetry. It's not meant to be too literal. I said, geographically speaking, the U.S. is a red country with blue spots. Mm. And naturally, enormous arguments followed, none of which kind of riffed on, almost none of them. Some of them did. What I was looking for is like, okay, that's interesting you put it that way. Let's look at that. No, Mm. it was, I mean, that's the kind of thing a teacher would say to a class, right? You know, I mean, I'm interested by that. Yeah. And like Pearl Map, look at the map of Pennsylvania right now. Well, and I'm thinking of where you live. I mean, you're in Indiana, right? And I mean, Bloomington is a blue spot on a red map for the most part, right? And and when we were last there, we drove to um uh to Canyon College in Ohio and in Knox County there. Um, and a little east of there, you're getting toward Hillier country, and there were signs everywhere that said in big red letters, God guns, coal, Trump, right? A lot of them. And that was like, and I thought, wow, but that's, that's the, there's a narrative there that connects those dots. And, you know, but at the same time, I mean, to to me, it's a, it's not a very motivating slogan, but build back better actually, you know, from Biden said something that was inherently constructive, I would think. But I really do think there's a there's this weird urban and rural divide right now that Petros, who's not on this show, but he's usually on our show, on Slack we were talking, he said that, you know, when he drove from Chicago to Kentucky or to someplace to see relatives and he'd scan on the radio, the only thing you're hearing mm. is the world according to 
Trump, you know, and, and, and defense of it and explanation of it and go where it's taken on faith that Democrats are really freaking evil. I mean, they're, you know, I don't know if you've seen a new Borat movie, but you know, there's a, I've heard of it. And I've seen, oh my, I, I, I suggest seeing it. It's, it's, it's torture if you don't like seeing people made uncomfortable, but it's brilliantly done, you know, but at one point he's kind of spoofing, he's, he's hanging out with a couple of Trump fans who are helping him out. He's playing this guy from another country and they're helping him out. And he says, you know, you know, what's worse, you know, and I don't know, he says some serial killer or Democrats. Says, oh yeah. Democrats. Right. You know, that's, and it's, we have a number I, of different divides. One is geographical. Yeah. yeah. We have a different one depending upon which issue you want to raise. Some are gender. Mm-hmm. Some are ethnic. I mean, you know, are you talking about just now, if you're talking about just po- political party affiliation, here's something I would really um, <laughs> suggest. And I'm picking this up because I just bought yeah. the book. I have a chance to read it yet, the but people, I don't want people to People listening to this, I, I, I feel like an hors d'oeuvre tray being carried around. <laughs> while, uh, <laughs> while Barbara's car- <laughs> walking with her laptop. <laughs> okay. And um, just picked out a book. <laughs> I had read a number of previous books by John Dean. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And about the authoritarian personality. And I was mm. learning a lot in political science. This is empirically based, learning that there are certain personality types that mm-hmm. tend to, are highly correlated with um, certain political positions. And mm-hmm. he just came out and he refers to research of a, of a man on the person on the on the authoritarian personality, Bob Altemeyer. And they just published a book called Authoritarian Nightmare, colon, Trump and His Followers by John Dean and Bob Altemeyer, where they're looking into how we can better understand why some people align, tend to be aligned politically with certain groups based on a personality or based on this authoritarian personality type. So mm-hmm. now that's going to cut across. That's not going to fit a specific just region or race or sex or whatever. So it's multifactorial trying to determine why people align the way they do. But um, the authoritarian, and I'd have to refresh my l- recollection of this to speak more cogently about it. But the, just, the gist of the idea is best of my recollection is the authoritarian personality has to do with how you react to power, where you want power to be. I can't remember exactly, but I don't want to, I don't want to mess up explaining to it, but um, certain people, God, I'd like to refresh my recollection before I talk about this, but there's empirical evidence that show why people tend to follow authoritarian leaders versus others. And there's a certain kind of questionnaire that's been a developed and been tested for decades now. And there's a very high correlation with people who perceive the world a certain way and how they come to align, therefore, with certain leaders in one way versus another. And that I wanna read to get a better handle on what, that I think might go better towards trying to explain what the mindset is of somebody who's a Trump follower. There's another book, it's on my list. 
I'm probably going to have to cut this out because I won't find the title, but <laughs> it's about, it's a similar study about conspiracy theories. It's, a, it's trying to define what type of person adheres to conspiracy theories and what, you know, and what has led to the proliferation of conspiracy theories. And of course I can't find the title anyway, but it, but it's a similar idea. Well, I, yeah, you know, he, I'm sorry to interrupt. He talked about like some people are social dominators. Others are authoritarian followers, things like that. There's different personality types and there's certain types of people who tend to follow people who want to be socially dominant. I'm sorry. Anyway, but yeah. you get, no, no, that's interesting. You get the gist of it. And I think we need to think more in these terms. We have to understand better how people behave, how they're wired, how they respond to things. I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have interrupted. Yeah, and, and then this no, is no, a, that's good. It, you know, yeah. it, we 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 put links in with with every episode, and well, we can link to the to the book to those books. Yeah. Oh, Fantasyland. So, so, that's the book that I was ah, thinking of. Hmm. Have you read it? I've heard of it, but I haven't. I've got a stack of about thirty books I, I want to read. I haven't had time to read. I've yeah. been to Fantasyland at Disneyland, actually. Uh, different so fantasy. Back when I was there, I don't <laughs> know if it's still pleasant. there or not. It was sixty years ago. <laughs> when it's I was a still kid. there. It's still there. Oh my gosh! So um, Zainab Tufechi, who's uh, a columnist in many places and a former colleague at the Berkman Klein Center, um, reads, writes very eloquently about a lot of this. And she she just put out a newsletter today that said, you know, well, if we lose Donald Trump, that doesn't mean what made him attractive is going away. And if we could easily get an authoritarian who actually is not not a liar not not does has none of the things that we dislike in trump and but is still the authoritarian you know whatever but anyway it's a it's a, it's a little bit of a scary thought because um i think there's something in human nature that wants to follow a leader i don't think trump gets any credit from the other side or gets very little credit for being the real leader he is he is a leader he, he led those people you know he people go to that rally because you know, they, they like that guy and and he leads them and and they cheer for him. That, that would never happen with Biden. OK, you know. It, no. Oh, I turned the page real quickly. You might find this. Sure, go for it. Go for it. Um, so one of the chapters in, in this new book is about authoritarian, explain what authoritarian followers are. And they're using mm -hmm. this in the context to explain a lot of uh, Trump's supporters. Authoritarian followers show these three characteristics. One, a high degree of submission to the perceived established legitimate authorities in society. Two, high levels of aggression in the name of those authorities. And three, a high level of conventionalism insisting that others follow the norms endorsed by their authorities. And um, yeah. That's certainly, you know, and he says because these followers submit to what they consider the established legitimate authorities, they are called, and this is not in the politicals, they're called right wing authoritarians, but right wing here does not mean conservatism. It's referring to a degree to which they follow. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's the whole idea at the gist of it is that there's certain people have the psychological, have traits of being authoritarian followers and others of being authoritarian social dominators. Trump is viewed as a social dominator and people who follow him are in this context or on this scale are considered followers. And so that can happen in, in varying demographic groups. Uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, a, a guy. Oh, that's just here. another piece of the puzzle. Is what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, interesting. I, I think you get a handle on. There's a lot of factors in play, and that's another yeah. one to look at. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I think there's, you know, we've been at this for an hour. I was so about to say the same. I, so I, I want to change the, the subject episode. to something that we can oh, leave sure. in or take out because we can edit this. It has nothing to do with politics, but it has a lot to do with, with you, Barbara. And, yes. and that's horses. Oh, yes. You're into horses. And, and I'm, so the question I ask is what, as somebody who has horses, is into horses, what can they teach us? Oh, God, so much. I found that um, I gravitated towards horses from a young, very young age. But my father said, oh, all little girls say that you'll outgrow it. So I didn't actually get my own horse until I was an adult. And it was like a graduation present to myself after law school. Mm. What can horses teach us? So, and I met my husband because of horses. He had a horse, I had a horse, a mutual horse friends introduced. <laughs> and that's foundation for explaining the following. Horses experience the world differently than we do. They are not prey predators. They are not predators, they're prey animals. And so they exist in their environment. They're hypervigilant to their environment in the sense that they're very aware if something doesn't feel right. Okay. And their number one defense, something doesn't feel right, you split rather than try and fight. And they have a social grouping and they, they have their own hierarchy and they cue off each other. They live very much in the now, in the present. Okay. Not worrying about what happened yesterday, not worrying about tomorrow. It's like a continuing now or present. And so when you're with them, and you interact with them, you learn how to be living more in the now. For that time, if you really want to bond and communicate, you can't be worried about yesterday, you can't be worried about tomorrow, just be with them now. Hmm. And what I have found is that it's very calming for me. It's very calming for me. They're also very in tune to body language. Hmm. Okay, so if you're thinking one thing and you try and pretend, let's say you're really upset or whatever, you try and pretend you're not, they'll look at you like, what's with you? Something's up. They sense cognitive dissonance. They mm -hmm. mirror you as you are. Not as what you think you are or you want to be. They mirror you as you are. If you come in kind of all scrambled up or whatever, they feel it. They're very authentic that way. And so for that reason, and I'd have to pull another book off my shelf to find it, <laughs> but it's been studied that horses they now find are incredibly effective working with people with PTSD. Wow. Because wow. you see PTSD creates hypervigilance in the individual. And so horses are also hypervigilant. Okay. And there's a certain safety you start to feel with them. Okay. And if you want to be with them and present with them, you have to be aware of where you are now. And so they'll mirror you as you are. So if you're upset or whatever, they'll mirror that. But as you start to calm down and get grounded and you learn to be around the horse or whatever, it's very soothing. They will mirror back to you. They will come up to you, lick, with you, lick you, all this kind of stuff. But you're acting funky. They're like, what would you? And so they're finding um, that they're very effective in working with people with PTSD. Uh, not just PTSD, they're also effective in working with people who have all sorts of other kinds of problems. They even said this is why some of the camps that they sent, like 
let's say teenagers, things that had drug problems. Uh, they send them to places out in the West. They're call it equine assisted therapy, getting them to be around horses, being with nature. They're a way of getting you grounded <clears throat> in your body. So you can integrate your mind and body become whole. Our species is unique in that we can separate. We have the ability for our rational brains, analytical brains to take us off in another direction from what, where the body's really at. And a lot of problems humans face, which include PTSD is not being integrated. Being around horses helps you integrate and become a whole person and not stay stuck like in a trauma or not stay stuck in dysfunctional behavior. It's the most incredible thing I can say. I mean, through this whole COVID thing, fortunate for me, the barn has always remained open. And that's, even though we took certain precautions, but there's not a high number of traffic or people. And I cannot tell you how much I enjoy going out to the barn and being with my horses. And they teach you a way I can interact better with people because of getting grounded with horses. Wow. I, I, it gets me calm. I feel safe with them. And they're unusual in that here with you have animals of such size, unlike dogs, which are predators. And the other thing with horses of their size, you cannot get a horse to do something. You don't want to do it. Mm. And so also physically being around a being that, you know, for the most part, my horses are, you know, like over a thousand pounds. Okay. They're big size horses to have an animal of that size want to have a bond with you to want to be a partner you you know when you're really with a horse it's a partnership they're one of a relatively small number of species that can be domesticated and the fact that of that size that they choose to be with you want to interact with you and have a bond with you and that you can't do it by just out muscling them hmm. you know what i'm saying that it's a true partnership when you're really working with horses as a partner it's a whole integrated in your body and mind and then, of course, when you're riding, it takes it to a whole nother level. I've never, you know, some people talk about flow, what it's like for an athlete to be in flow. That term, I get yeah. in flow when I ride. And that's mm. because now I'm integrating with another species. You know, when you see pairs figure skating, it's a man and a woman. Yeah. Having to yeah. adjust their balance with each other. Well, imagine that with a horse and rider. It's an interspecies balancing act. And to have a horse of this size while you were the rider and him willing to submit to say, this is where I want you to go. I want you to go over mm. here and I want you to do it a trot or a canter, or I want you to be more collected or not, or I want you to jump that fence. The kind of bond that you develop with a horse where as a team, you're truly partners and you're queuing off each other physically. And it's just the most amazing thing. Wow. Um, and I think it could help people get more grounded in their bodies. I think mm -hmm. on one of the downsides of our civilization is increasingly we've come out of our bodies doing things more sedentary or on a desk or a computer. We forget mm -hmm. what it's like to inhabit our body yeah. and, and to feel like a whole being. And for me, horses give me that. Hope I didn't go on too long for that, but it's just but it's it, great. It's and that's a great way to, uh, to, to wrap in it. Cause it, it's almost a call for action to people to get, to at yeah. least get out of their chairs. <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, and integrate uh, with nature because we can get integrate, Yeah. Yeah. Because when you got the TV on, you get all this kind of stuff. We did not evolve for that. 
Yeah. We need yeah. to get back and restore a balance for what our biology is geared for. That can help us better manage than all these other th artificial yeah. things we've created. So for me, I keep trying to get a recharge through my horses helps me recharge and be able to re-engage again. But horses are very unusual in that regard and a very special kind of bond you can have with them. And thanks for asking, but they're an integral part of my life. <laughs> I, I know mean, they are. are. I know they are. <laughs> okay. Well, well thank, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah thank this you has too. been great. This has been great. This has been great.